All right, and we are back. We are once again exploring faith and pursuing grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And today we're going to revisit a topic that we had briefly discussed in the past tangentially. Not too long ago, we had done an episode about the Good Samaritan. We had talked about that famous parable of Jesus. And at the end, Kevin, you kind of dropped a 10 megaton bomb that kind of came out of nowhere, this idea that the Samaritan who didn't know what he worshipped according to what Jesus said to the woman at the well, this Samaritan who by all accounts was not a Jew and who didn't practice the the Jewish law or the Jewish faith, he helped this man who was on the way. And the, impl- the implication is, is this man who fell among thieves, who was helped by this Samaritan, this is a man who showed love to neighbor and he answered that question that was ultimately asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The implication being, well, this Samaritan inherited eternal life, even though he didn't have a full, reasonable understanding of God and who God is as it relates to the practice of the Jewish faith that was in action during the time of Christ. And that sent kind of a shockwave through our listenership. We had some good discussions on our Facebook discussion board after it, and we received some emails with some questions. The implication being, will people who have never heard about Jesus be lost? And that's the question because it's come up several times in conversation and through email and other manner of points of contact. This is a question that keeps coming up again and again. So we are going to answer it as best we can tonight. I had a, yeah, I had a friend of mine who actually brought this point up to me. um, I don't know, probably about four years ago, we were just having a conversation casually and just a, a good friend of mine, good Bible student. And we were talking and he said, well, does this imply that the Samaritan was was saved, that the Samaritan had eternal life, even though he didn't know who or what he worshipped and he didn't really have a proper understanding of God or worship? And, and I just stood there for a minute and I said, I've never thought of it that way before. And so I started to dig in a little bit deeper. And that was obviously one of the sub points that, as you brought up, that we made in that episode when we talked about the Good Samaritan. And I, I still think personally, that that is a point that Jesus did make. And I think it stands quite strong uh, when you compare it to this, the whole context of the, the question that was asked. I, I just keep going back to that in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, some people say, well, this, this is more about of who is my neighbor. And that's what Jesus is trying to answer. He's just trying to explain that everyone's our neighbor. And I think that's true, too, because that question is also asked. That's the follow-up question, because first, what must I do to inherit eternal life was asked. Then Jesus answered by saying, you are to love God and love your neighbor. And then the follow-up question is, well, who's my neighbor? And that's when Jesus ended up telling the parable here of the Good Samaritan. But what what was amiss, for, for me at least, for many years, is that the story does not have the Jew... Uh, being kind to a Samaritan, it actually has the Samaritan being kind to the Jew. In other words, the Samaritan is the hero in this story. And so if Jesus was not intending to convey that the Good Samaritan was an example of someone who was showing love to his neighbor despite not having all the religious answers, despite not really understanding how to properly worship, despite not really even understanding uh, the, the propositional truths of God, he was still justified and had eternal life. Why? Because he was fulfilling the law, which is to love neighbor as oneself. 
Well, and dude, that point right there, that is a game changer and that's mind blowing because that's a wrinkle that I haven't ever thought about until you just said that, you know, if Jesus's point would have been to say that, you know, that you still have to have a cognitive awareness of the gospel or the right approach to God, well, then it does make sense that the Jew would then serve the Samaritan because I mean, we've all heard it said that the Jews hated the Samaritans. The the Samaritans, there was no love lost between them and the Jews, you might say. Like they hated the Samaritans with every fiber of their being. And if Jesus wanted to say, well, you need to show love to the Samaritans, and that's the point of the story, he could have just as easily said that this Jewish man came upon this Samaritan who had yeah, this, been bruised and, and, he and could, bloodied. Yeah, and Jesus could have even used the uh, the, the Levite and the priest, and then you know there was a there was a poor Jewish beggar who was walking down the road, or a, a poor Jewish man who gave you know the last money he had to help this Samaritan. Jesus could have, have done it a million different ways to still have have made it very clear that you still have to have the proper knowledge or the proper understanding uh, in order to be saved. But Jesus took this and flipped it on its head, and he brought a Samaritan into the story. Well, and I'm glad that we're discussing this because this is a topic that I've wrestled with for years. This is a concept that I've wrestled with for years, not necessarily related to the Good Samaritan, though that does shed some light on it, but a passage that I have brought up in our Facebook community, and it's a passage you and I have talked about before, is Romans 2, where the Bible mm-hmm. talks about, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, if you want to read it, you might just yeah, do that. Yeah, you where, may go ahead and read it. Uh, yeah, yeah, go okay. ahead. And while you get that pulled up, I'll just go ahead and summarize. You know, the Bible here, or Paul here, speaks about how Gentiles who have no concept of the law still engage with the law from the heart by doing the things from the heart that are in the law, even though they have no knowledge of the law. That's a law unto itself. And so in, with that in mind, I've, all, I've thought for a long time, well, then how does that work? What's the application as it exists within the life of of, of a Christian in this day and age? Does that mean that someone out there in the middle of nowhere who's never heard about Jesus, who shows love to neighbor and who treats his fellow image bearers as God would have him treat them, even though they have no knowledge that that's how God wants them to treat them, is that something that will count for them in the future? So anyway, at this point, you probably have it pulled up, so go ahead. Yeah, so Romans 2, verse 14 and 15, it says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, or at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. This is a very intriguing passage because within the context here of Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking to the talking about Jews and Gentiles, but he's he's speaking in uh, the first part of chapter 2 about the Jews and how they have the law but they're not even doing what the law says. And then he turns his attention to the Gentiles and say, well, they don't have the law, and yet they're basically still fulfilling the law, even though they don't know what it is. And and then he goes on, of course, uh, to to talk about how uh, it's not just the the Gentiles, it's not just the Jews, but in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short. But neatly tucked into Romans 1, 2, and 3 are these two verses here in verses 14 and 15. And I had always used these verses to talk about prior 
to Jesus coming or prior to the new covenant. So, well, this is just Paul alluding back to how things were before Jesus and before the, the new covenant was established. But Paul here is speaking in present tense, and this isn't anything he's going back to. He's speaking presently, and he's even talking about uh, how this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. And so I firmly believe that this is talking about people, uh, at least some people. We're going to kind of unpack what all this means here in this episode, but there seems to be at least those Gentiles, that is those who, who don't have the law, they don't have that knowledge, the the the, the understanding, the law, and yet they're still going to be saved. They're still going. They, or they still can be saved. They are going to be judged based upon God's grace and mercy and holiness and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a very fascinating passage. And so when I brought up the this point in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's not like that's the only time where we see this idea. We also yeah. see Paul talking about this idea too. In fact, most of the Old Testament, we see this idea. But the reason why this is so difficult for people to accept or for people to even contemplate, including myself for a long time, and I grant that there's still some tension there that we have to look at, and we're going to look at some of those passages tonight. But I think that the, these passages have to be considered in any conversation we have about who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. And I do have one point I want to briefly make before we really dive into this. This is a topic, and it's really all topics when it comes to religion. We have to remain humble. And anything that we state, anything that I state, this is simply my understanding at this time based upon what I have studied, based upon uh, my personal experience, my personal understanding, based upon studying what others have written. This is what makes the most sense to me especially when taking other verses into consideration. Um, that, yes, people who never heard about Jesus post-New Covenant can be saved, for sure. I, I definitely believe that that's taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan, as well as Romans chapter 2, as well as the meta narrative of God's character and who He is based upon how we see the stories told in the Old Testament, who Jesus demonstrated to be while He was on earth, and what we know in the New Testament. So I say all those things simply to say that anything I'm saying, I'm not putting a, a definitive exclamation point. I don't really think we can do that necessarily with anything because we, we have to be humble. And I can have faith and I can base that faith on what I believe is rational uh, conclusions. But at the end of the day, I always try to keep an open mind. But at this point in time, what I'm going to affirm in this episode is what I believe makes the most sense when taking all of these things into consideration. But as always, I reserve the right to be wrong. And I have changed quite a bit. And there's no doubt I'm going to continue changing on many things as I grow and mature. It, well, in that right there, it's I, I think that's a great way to introduce this concept because, you know, this is something that you have studied out and you feel fairly fairly confident in this position. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing an episode on it, but this is a position that I really, I'm just, I'm not there yet. Like I track with you and you know, you and I, we've talked about this in, in the weeks gone by leading up to this. We've talked over the phone. We've talked before we hit record and afterwards we texted each other. 
And I see the point being made and I can see the rationale behind it and I can see the veracity of the claim, but it still makes me uncomfortable. And I think it makes a lot of people uncomfortable (laughs) because, you know, we have been, and and this is one of the things I told you, and I may have even already said it when we were on the air. I mean, we're 12 minutes in and I don't remember, but maybe it's my own spiritual conditioning. Maybe it's my own religious upbringing. The idea that, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me, except by me. Like, you know, knowing Jesus, that's how we get there. You know, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved and, you know, and repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus, it it almost seems as though there is a knowledge factor and a requirement to have some sort of knowledge about Jesus in order to be saved. And whenever that's something you've been conditioned to think and conditioned to know forever, anything that runs counter to that can make you uncomfortable. And yeah, so sure. I'll freely admit there, there is a measure of discomfort in this conversation for me because what we are talking about and, and where you are, I'm not quite there yet. I would love for this to be true, but I'm not convinced that it is. I'm hopeful that it is. I'm, I'm just not sure, though. I know that it does seem to align with God's sense of justice and God's sense of fairness and mercy and grace and compassion. But there's still those hangups that I that I just mentioned that I'm having a hard time getting past myself. So as we go through this conversation, yeah, so I think that it's it's going to be a good time. Yeah, and, let, and let's look at those. Let's let's kind of delve into all of these different um, passages and examples that seem to have tension with one another. Yeah, it sounds good to me. And I, I think a good place to start would be this idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven. There are many passages that speak to the fact that Jesus is the only way that anyone will ever be saved or that anyone can be saved. Period. Full stop. Yeah. The only way to access heaven, the only way to have eternal life is through Jesus Christ. You see this reflected in John 14 and 6, Acts 4 and 12. And I mean, just a huge number of verses that that we don't even have to read. That That's a running thread throughout Scripture. So if sure. Jesus is the only way to heaven, how do we flesh that out with this idea that maybe there's someone who has never even heard the name of Jesus, or maybe they don't believe that that's you know that yeah yeah Jesus existed and he was a person and he was a preacher but he wasn't a messiah he wasn't the son of god yeah you know or maybe they've never even we're not even talking about those people in this episode let's keep it focused this is someone who's never even heard about Jesus i don't want to yeah. you know go off on too many bunny trails what do we do with those passages that speak to Jesus as being the only way to heaven yeah so i believe that these statements are soteriological and what I, what I mean by that is I believe that these are simple statements pertaining to the means of salvation. I don't believe that they are epistemological, which is the knowledge that one must uh, have in order to be saved. So when you see statements like John 14, 6, Jesus being the only way, Acts 4, 12, there's no other name given among mankind by which we can be saved. I, I agree wholeheartedly. As a Christian, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, no doubt about it uh, in my mind because I'm a Christian and that's what I believe. That's that's a faith statement. But with within that, all that I believe that that is establishing is the means by which we are saved. I don't believe it gives those specific passages. We're going to look at some other passages here in a minute, but I do believe that those are more um, not having to do with the knowledge that one must have in order to be saved, 
but this is the means of salvation that anyone who has ever been saved will be saved is being saved etc cetera, etc cetera, is going to be because of Jesus Christ and so I don't think that believing the Good Samaritan was saved in the story or believing that the Gentiles who never heard about Jesus and yet according to Paul in Romans 2 can still be saved I don't think that that has anything to do with negating these soteriological statements that Jesus is still going to be the means by which everyone will be saved who will be saved. Well, and and that does make sense. And I think delineating the difference between a soteriological statement or one that has to do with salvation itself versus an epistemological statement, that's an important delineation to make. But the, but here's so here's where it gets tricky though, <laughs> is that there are epistemological statements that seem to tie in to these soteriological statements and. These are the passages that actually do say one must believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. So now this is this is the tricky part, right? Because John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12, we could say, okay, Jesus is the only way. So anyone who's ever going to be saved is because of Jesus. All right, fair enough. But what about all those passages that actually say, like John 8, 24, unless you unless believe, you believe that, I am, that I am he, you will <laughs> uh, die in your sins. You know, and, and even John 14, 6, I mean, you know, implies that there has to be this belief there. It would seem um, at least possibility there uh, within context. So so it, while it is talking about a soteriological idea of salvation only being through Jesus Christ, there is this epistemological statement that there there has to be this belief attached as well for 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 a human in order to receive that entrance through Jesus Christ there has to be faith i mean that that's really what the christian system is based upon it's a faith based system we're saved by grace through what through faith through faith yeah so Kevin, how in the world can you believe, right? This is this is the question that I would be asking myself. How in the world can you believe then that people could be saved with with that if 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 they don't have this, that Jesus is the only way to heaven? All right. It's a good question. Well, it's an extremely <laughs> good question. And dude, one of the things that's coming to mind is how many times did you because I know I did it at the end of every single sermon I gave give the five point or four point plan of oh, yeah. salvation here, here, here believe six confess. Point. six points all here, and live faithfully confess, be baptized live faithful yep that's right you know unless you believe that i am he you'll die in your sins unless you confess me before men i'll confess you before my father who is in heaven and, and you know and in that sense i'm thinking how can you confess jesus if you don't know who he is and if you don't know who he is you're not going to confess him if you don't confess him you're not going to be confessed before the father who's in heaven and if, if that's the case <laughs> obliteration. Yeah. There you go. You know, you're done. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So here, here's my understanding currently on all of these passages. And there's a lot of them just here in my notes. I've, I've referenced already John 8, 24, Luke 10, 16, Matthew 12, 42, Mark 12, 10, Luke 7, 30, John 12, 48, Acts, uh, Acts 4, 11, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 7. They're there and there's a lot of them. So here's my understanding with this belief, with this framework. I do not believe that those who never heard are even under consideration in these contexts. Okay, now, we're how not going to figure have, that. 
So we're not, yeah, so we're not going to have time to go through every single one because, I mean, there's dozens of these. It would take us a long time. But when you look at each one of these contexts, I believe that they have to be qualified. And I believe when we qualify those contexts, we'll see Jesus is speaking. And in most of these passages, Jesus is speaking within a context of those who either just rejected him. And so Jesus is giving this kind of reiteration. Anyone who rejects me, you know, they will not be able to be saved. Uh, anyone who rejects me, they will not have eternal life. Uh, you know, runs up against a, gr- a group of elitist Jews who, uh, who are mocking him, trying to test him. And then Jesus ends with a statement, you must believe that I'm the Christ. So who is Jesus talking to in, in these contexts? And I would say, by and large, in fact, I would actually make the argument, especially in the gospel accounts, that by and large, if not every single time, and the reason why I'm saying by and large is because I personally have not found an exception to this. I'm willing to say there, there's one out there. But by and large, it seems that when Jesus is making these types of statements, he's doing so to a Jewish audience who has rejected him as the Messiah. And so I believe that when you qualify each of these passages, it's not speaking or it's not uh, talking about or even considering those who actually never heard of Jesus Christ. I believe it's speaking directly of those who have and they have also rejected him. So in that sense, it, it makes sense then to say that they are not saved and they will not inherit eternal life in this sense because they see Jesus, they know who he is, or rather they know who he's claiming to be, we might say, but they're rejecting him. They have no faith in who he is. They have That's no faith correct, at all. Yeah. But yeah. then that gets back to that question about that bridge between epistemology and salvation, between knowledge and salvation, and that's faith. So yeah. if, if that's the case and you have other people who have never heard of Jesus, they don't know or, or don't have enough information to even be able to make a judgment as to whether they're going to accept that he is the Messiah or reject the yeah. idea that he's the Messiah. They just have no idea who this guy is. They, yes. they don't know who Jesus is at all. So in that sense, they don't have faith because they don't know who he is. How is that different from that overt rejection? Yeah, so this is this is what I was taught growing up, is that people are not lost because they reject Jesus. They're lost because they are in sin. Okay, okay. so I, and, and you may have heard that too. I don't know, but that, that's what I was taught growing up. And so whether or not someone ever heard the gospel message... Ha, did, now, once again, I want to reiterate, I'm saying what I was taught growing up, not what I currently believe. But what I was taught growing up is that regardless of if someone ever heard about Jesus or whether they went to church every week and they they had the message of Jesus drilled in them week in and week out and they still didn't accept, didn't accept it, it doesn't matter because they're both lost if they don't have faith in Jesus Christ, regardless if they heard it a million times, regardless if they didn't hear the message one time. And that goes back yeah, to... Yeah, even if the, they're... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I'm, I'm sorry. Even even if their ignorance may have been enough to save them, their sins are enough to condemn them. That's a way yeah, exactly. that I used to put it whenever I would preach. There you go. Yeah, yeah, pretty much the same thing. It's that same idea that uh, it's not a rejection of the gospel that gets one lost. It's sin 
that puts one in the position of of being lost. And so this is now where we're talking about epistemology, which once again, that's just a fancy word for knowledge. And soteriology, which is once again, talking about salvation. And within this context, we're talking about Christian salvation, because that's what I believe salvation boils down to is through Jesus Christ. So this is the question that I first had to ask myself. Before we get into the text of the Good Samaritan, before we get into Romans 2 and get into these others, let's let's see if we're applying this across the board. Someone is a small child and they die at two years old. Are they going to go to heaven? Now, of course, yeah. That's so, what so, I would answer. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the answer is, well, yeah, because they're safe. They're safe. Okay, so the question, therefore, is, well, well what makes them safe? And you're going to get different answers on this. Now, if now some people will might may answer they're lost. Um, there's not this this gets into kind of we could get into a completely different discussion on Calvinism and predestination at this point, but I, I don't want to go there because that's that's a whole other topic. But probably the majority of our audience would say no. If a two year old baby drowned or or you know whatever it might be, uh, some terrible accident, we would say that they're safe. Well, why is that? Were, were they were they saved with or without Jesus? And it's interesting when you really boil this this question down because I actually have had different preachers give me different answers for this in conversation. Some will say, "Well, no, they didn't need Jesus because they never sinned. Um, so therefore, there was never a need for them to have to be saved by Jesus because they they never sinned. Uh, they were too young to understand what sin was, and so they never actually committed sin because James 1, 10 through 12 says that one sin, one sins when they're led away by their own desires, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, therefore, a little two-year-old couldn't have done that. Then others have said, well, um, they were still human, so they were saved, but they were saved by Jesus. And so you, you just you kind of have different different answers to this. But the bottom line is, I'm going to assume, because I don't want to get into a different topic, and Lee, I know you and I agree on this point, I want to assume that most of yeah. us and those listening would say that a little two-year-old baby who died would be saved, okay? Well, all right, so then, then we start saying, okay, well, what about someone then who is uh, 10 years old or 12 years yeah. old? And, uh, and they actually went to church, but maybe they haven't made that decision yet. And so in this case, we would say, well, they, they had heard. What is the relationship at that point between knowledge and salvation? And then we can even get a little bit further and say, well, what about someone who we would consider mentally handicapped? What about someone who we would say, well, you know, they're 50 years old, but they have the, the, the mental capacity of a 12-year-old? A lot of children are baptized at 12. And so is that is that person who we would claim uh, is is safe? And by the way, I believe they're safe too, for sure. <laughs> but why would they be safe? What what is have they sinned? Have they done anything wrong? Have they violated the law? So it all of a sudden gets really messy, in my opinion. Now, some people think that, oh, these, these are easy questions to answer. In my opinion, I don't think they are, because when you're trying to drill down epistemology and soteriology, and you start talking about children, especially small children, babies, and you start talking about individuals who are mentally handicapped, you know, I was taught that there were three groups of people, the, the lost, the saved, and the safe. The problem is the safe is a group we've created. 
Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, th- there's, there is, uh, in fact, I've talked to some friends of mine who actually believe that uh, they, they would debate whether or not children are going to be saved if they die, if they didn't have faith, because they go to pastors like Matthew 18 and say, well, children need to have faith in Jesus. And so if children don't have faith in Jesus, then I, I don't really know if they're part of the kingdom. And it, it just becomes a very interesting conversation at that point. But my, my point is this, is that we all agree that there's going to be people in heaven who never had faith in Jesus Christ already. Yeah. No, I already, I mean, we're, we we have to start with that point, that there's going to be people in heaven who never had faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm talking post-New Covenant, not pre-New Covenant, post-New Covenant. And so starting the conversation that way, I'm curiously, what was your understanding? How, how did you e- explain that or answer that, you know, growing up? What were some of the arguments you heard for that? Well, that's pretty much the same thing that you did. I mean, the vast majority, because, and, and here's what's interesting. I've, I've done a little bit of reading on Calvinism and the idea yeah. that is often preached and bandied about before I did that reading and whenever I was still preaching. And if I ever preached against Calvinism as a concept, I would say that Calvinism says that all babies are going to hell because babies are born depraved, et cetera, et cetera. Even though John Calvin never believed or taught that. In fact, he taught the opposite. If you look that You'll up. be hard but, pressed yeah, to find a yeah. Calvinist who actually believes children are going to go to hell uh, when, when, it, yeah. when push comes to shove. Absolutely. And and like I said, I don't like you. I don't want to get too far afield and dive into Calvinism because that is a whole other story and a whole other podcast for a whole other time. But I explained it in much the same way you did. And, you know, these children will be lost. Those people that are mentally handicapped, you know, or the children won't be lost. They'll be saved. You know, they're not lost. People who are mentally handicapped will not be lost because they don't have the mental capacity. They are childlike in their mental stature. They don't have the mental capacity to, to understand and rationalize and conceptualize what sin is and why they need redemption. You know, there. if you've ever met anybody, and yeah, there are some mentally challenged and mentally handicapped people that are jerks. I've met some of them too, but by and large, the vast majority of those folks within that cohort are really, really good people. Yeah, that tickled you, and I'm not sure why, but I have. I've met some of them that were just mean, brother. Oh, that's but, horrible. <laughs> oh, it is. It really is. But but here's the truth of the matter, though, and this is where, where I would retort to that. It's like, well, yeah, that is the case, and that may very well be the case, and I believe that is the case. But in this, we're not talking about those people who are exceptions. We're not talking about the mentally challenged. We're not talking about children. We're not talking about those people. We're talking about adults in sound mind of sound judgment who have never heard about Jesus. What about them? So, I mean, I would bring it back to that is, is how I would answer that. No, and I think that's that's what I used to do as well, and that's probably what a lot of people would do who who would argue the opposite of what I'm I'm reasoning out tonight. Um, the in my opinion, the problem with that is it gives exceptions that don't go far enough uh, because ultimately what we're saying is well those are exceptions to the rule. Well, oh, why are they exceptions to the rule? What what verse are we going to go to to say uh, that mentally handicapped people are saved? that yeah. uh, people who are children are saved. Where are we going to go? And, and, and you know, someone who is not a Calvinist, as far as children, I'm, I would probably go to Ezekiel 18 or I'd go to Matthew 8. You know, I'd, I'd go to host a passage and say, well, children aren't sinners. But okay, I, I get that. But when you talk about why, why are they saved? Why are the mentally handicapped saved? 
Um, why is that the case? If they don't have faith, why? And it, it boils down to ultimately they they never had the opportunity. Now the, the difference in opportunity one is well they weren't they they never were able to live long enough if you were a child. If they lived another five to 10 years, they would have had the opportunity, but they never had that opportunity. So therefore, they shouldn't be held accountable. What about someone mentally handicapped? Well, mentally, emotionally, they didn't. Have, they don't have the, the emotional opportunity. They don't have the mental opportunity to be able to really understand the way that we do when we talk about epistemology, to have that knowledge, to have that maturation. And so to me, I think that we can extend this out a little bit further. And and I'm going to give you what I believe reasons that would demonstrate that. But I first want to go back to this. Did the Samaritan in the parable have faith? Now, I'm not going to answer that right now, but just for a moment, did the Samaritan in the parable have faith? Now, Before we answer that, I want to kind of go through a tour of some examples. So I want to show some people who were saved by faith who never knew Jesus. Jews under the Old Testament, uh, Jews, this is the easy one first, the softball. Everyone, probably most people would agree with me on this. Jews under the Old Testament were saved by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4, Hebrews chapter 11 goes through kind of the hall of faith, as some people have called it. Uh, Romans 3, 21 through 30, there's a handful of passages. In fact, it's been described that they were saved by faith in Jesus through promise in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 31. That is, even though they didn't know Jesus, they were able to place their trust and faith in the limited information they had which according to Paul was considered, and this is very interesting, this was considered a faith-bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Now, before someone rushes off and says, wait a minute, that's the Old Testament. Okay, I understand that, but don't miss this point. These were individuals who didn't know Jesus Christ, yet because they were faithful to God under the Old Covenant, it was considered a faith that bore witness to Jesus Christ. So even though they didn't know Jesus, they had this faith that was a witness to Jesus Christ. So just let that sink in for a moment because I'm going to come back to that. The writer of Hebrews also, he makes a similar point in equating Moses' faith at that time as a faith in Christ. He actually uses that terminology in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26. So in other words, one can have a faith that bears witness to Jesus even when they are unaware of who he is. Well, and I think that's a really, really important point to make as well. And that really gets to the, at at its root, it's that definition of what is faith. And so often our faith is defined by that epistemology that we hold on to. Our faith is defined by the knowledge we have, or that's how we define our faith, I should say, is, is, well, yeah, I have faith in Jesus. And, And if someone walks up to you, well, do you have faith in Jesus? And it's like, well, we automatically assume in our own minds, that means do we have a conscious awareness of Jesus and who he is? Have we pledged fealty to him? And there are other things that dovetail in with that, other dominoes that fall in light of that statement. If we have faith in Jesus, then that tends to indicate typically that we know who Jesus is. We believe that he's the son of God. We go to church 
you know, in, in some tradition and in some way and in some sense at some time we go to church, we tend to avoid certain things that are considered immoral within our religious subculture. There are activities that we engage in that are considered moral and good and upright. And then there are other things that may be benign. And whenever we talk about that term faith, so often people automatically define that term faith as a knowledge and belief in Jesus. Even though those Old Testament patriarchs did not have a belief in Jesus, they still exhibited faith through their actions. And I want to make the point here that I'm not saying my, my argument is not, oh, here's a group of people who were saved without Jesus, because I don't think they were. I think they were saved because of Jesus, ultimately. But yeah. my point has nothing to do with that, because, it, well, it's not, it doesn't only have, uh, it doesn't just just have to do with that. Because you could write that off and say, yeah, but you're talking about the old covenant, Kevin, and times are different. This is before Jesus. I understand that. As you pointed out, my point is that, these are examples where one had a faith that bore witness to Jesus without knowing who he was. And the reason why I know that is because that's what the New Testament writers say. They say that all these individuals had a faith. They, they bore witness to Christ, even though they didn't know who, who Christ was, even though they didn't even have really a conception of of true messiahship, especially when you go all the way back in, in the early days of uh, what we would call some of the, the patriarchs. And when, you know, we're talking about Moses going all the way back. I mean, he had definitely had no understanding of, of, of who Jesus would one day be and the Messiah and those types of things. And so once again, one can have a faith that bears witness to Jesus, even when they are unaware of who he is. And this only adds further confirmation that Jesus' emphatic faith statements about believing in him were obviously not universal and timeless. Because when Jesus, if Jesus said in John 8, 24, uh, you know, that you must believe that he is the Christ in order to go to heaven, well, that would exclude everybody from the Old Testament because they didn't believe Jesus was the Christ. They didn't know who Jesus was. People say, oh yeah, Kevin, of course it didn't include them. Okay, if it didn't include them, then this cannot be a universal and timeless statement. It's a qualified statement that has to do more with, as we keep saying, soteriology than it does epistemology. Now, Paul's point, I believe, is is a strong point, because Paul's making the case that people, uh, excuse me, Paul isn't making the case that people were saved outside of faith, but that they were judged based upon their faith with the information they had. And so according to Paul and the writer of Hebrews, this was a faith bearing witness to Christ. Now, when we understand this, I believe we can understand the parable of the Good Samaritan. So how could the Samaritan be justified with faith? I don't believe he was. You mean without faith? Without faith, yes. I don't believe, uh, I, I, I don't believe, I, he wasn't. He wasn't justified without faith. I believe that the Good Samaritan in the parable had a measure of faith. Enough faith that, once again, was bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And I believe this is the actual point that Jesus is making here. I believe his point is, you have focused so much. And when I say you, I'm talking about these elitist Jewish leaders he's talking to, specifically this lawyer who comes up to test him. You guys are focusing so much on on the epistemology. You're you're focusing so much on making sure you know the laws and you properly can parse them out and you have these propositional truths that you're willing to accept and you're willing to you're you're willing to to agree to all that. 
But here's the thing. You don't have eternal life right now. Why? Because you do not have the kind of faith that bears witness of me. Well, what does that faith look like? Here's what it looks like. You're going down the road and you see your enemy hurt. You stop and you help them. That's what a true faith in action looks like. So I believe Jesus explains that justifying faith, which is trust, by the way, the word faith, has uh, always been demonstrated by a lifestyle of giving love. Did he have the same level of epistemological faith as the Levite or priest? Of course not. But faith is a growing process and everyone's at different levels. But he had the underlying saving kind of faith in that he was loving God and neighbor the best he could with what he knew, and he was justified because of it. And this is what Paul said. I think this is very interesting. This is what Paul said in Galatians 5, 6. They're trying to figure out whether you should be circumcised or not. Do we have to be circumcised to be saved? And Paul's writing to the churches of Galatia, and this is what he says. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. (laughs) The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul is making the point that if you want to know what faith looks like, if you want to see faith manifested, faith is something that is demonstrated. I mean, is that not what Galatians 2, I mean, excuse me, James chapter 2 is all about? I know we know that growing up in the churches of Christ about (laughs) what what faith looks like. So I, I believe the point here is that love for neighbor is foundationally faith-defined. For what better way can one bear witness to God than by love? And here's the, here's the verses that I use to back that statement. James 2.8 says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing the right thing. Galatians 5.4, Paul says, For the entire law can be summed up in keeping one command, love your neighbor as yourself. In Romans 13, 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And so, yes, I think that faith is essential. But what I believe is that we have to understand faith within the confines of how it's used in Scripture. And we have to be careful not to extend that to what we want faith to be today. Those who never knew about Jesus under the Old Testament, they were bearing witness to Christ. They had a faith. The Good Samaritan, I believe he had a faith because he was expressing his faith through love for his neighbor. And those Gentiles, Paul talks about in Romans 2, I believe there as well, we're talking about individuals who are loving their neighbor as themselves. They're doing the best they can with the information that they have. Well, and isn't that all of us? I mean, aren't you doing the best you can with the information you have? And yeah, isn't that yeah. me? I'm doing the best I can with the information I have. And and do whenever you were going through that and you were breaking that down, there's a point that you made that that stuck out to me. And it it really kind of turned this parable on its head, even again for me. You know, we always tend to read these parables, and we may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but we always tend to read these parables or read these stories, and we put ourselves and we read ourselves into the the hero's place, the protagonist's place in these stories. You know, whenever we read the story of the Good Samaritan, we tend to naturally think, well, I'm the Good Samaritan, I'm not the priest or the Levite. But that point you made about justifying faith being demonstrated in a lifestyle of love or in a way that in which you show love to your neighbor. 
you know, and, and you think about the priest and the Levite, they had way more knowledge than the Samaritan did. And this is what really stuck out to me with what you said. I mean, you had a ton of Bible knowledge before you went through your change. I have a lot of Bible knowledge, not quite as much as you or some other people that are out there. There are plenty of folks that know more than me, but I was failing in really demonstrating that love for neighbor. My love yeah. wasn't expressing itself through love. My faith was expressing itself through knowledge. And that really, and, and whenever you think about it in those terms, that really is the point that Jesus is making here, that all the knowledge in and of itself isn't going to save you. And at the end, love is what matters. And whenever we talked about the fruit of the spirit, we talked about love brother. That's a thread that emanates throughout scripture. It weaves itself throughout scripture. You cannot express faith without love. It's, it's an impossibility. Yeah. Well, and what, what is faith when, when, when you understand how faith is defined in scripture? And this is why (laughs) uh, I just think to the days doing Bible things and Bible ways and calling Bible Bible things by Bible names. names. Yeah. And and, and I mean, you know, as, as much as I kind of have despised where that leads in the, the uh, oftentimes unintentionality of, of those types of statements that have been weaponized, there there is truth behind it in the sense of we have to understand faith through the lens of how it's seen in scripture. And when you have passages that reiterate ultimately how faith looks, you know, what, what is faith manifested? Not just propositionally, what does faith look like? And this is what this parable does. And that's where James reinforces this. Paul reinforces this. Peter reinforces this. And they're all stating that this is what the law boils down to. Love God, love your neighbor. What does it really mean to love God? Because, I mean, I really, I've never seen God before. Uh, I, I don't, I believe in God, but I mean, it's it's never really been as much as I want to say a personal encounter. I believe I have through experience seen Jesus work and God work in yeah. my life, but it's kind of hard for me to love something that's kind of intangible. And so the Bible says, well, this is how you love God ultimately is how you love one another. Because even John says, well, how can you love God who you haven't seen when you don't even love your brothers and sisters and your neighbors who you have seen and you're around every day. And that's why this reiteration is found in scripture of loving your neighbor as yourself is the royal law. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill the law. And that's why I believe that this parable is demonstrating that even though he didn't have proper knowledge of God, he still had a faith that was bearing witness to Jesus because of his actions. Now, I want to say this, and I'm going to say this very slowly because this is how I have summarized this point. A faith that expresses itself through love, Galatians 5, 6, is a faith that bears witness to loving God, Luke 10, 27, is a faith that fulfills the law, Galatians 5, 14, Romans 13, 10, and James 2, 8, and is a faith that demonstrates how one inherits eternal life, Luke 10, 25. Now, it may be difficult to think that somebody can bear witness to Jesus without even knowing who he is. But we've already seen, based upon the Old Testament, and based upon how the New Testament writers talk about the Old Testament figures, they were able to bear witness to Jesus even though they didn't properly understand, or actually not only properly, they didn't know him at all. But people say, well, how, how can you bear witness to something you don't even know? But do we not make the same point when it comes to sin? 
One doesn't have to believe in the devil. One doesn't have to believe in evil in order to bear witness to it. (laughs) If we can know a tree by its fruit and a tree produces good fruit, then I have no choice but to call it a good tree. And that's what Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 17 through 18. And so someone may have never, someone may completely reject the idea of there being a God, of there being uh, evil in the world. Someone may say, no, that's just all societal. There's no such thing as right or wrong. They may reject that. But as a Christian, I could still look at that person and say, but their actions are bearing witness to evil, even if they don't believe in evil. And so and by the same token, can we not flip that and say, well, if someone who doesn't even know of evil or believe in evil, at least the way that we do, if they can still bear witness to it, then is it not the same with someone who perhaps doesn't understand the way we understand or know Jesus the way we know yet still is bearing witness to who Jesus and God is, which is ultimately love? Well, dude, that's a really, (laughs) that's a mind blowing proposition and, and flipping that on its head really does change things because we don't look at it in those terms. I mean, there are plenty of people out there that engage in what we would call sin who don't believe that the devil is real. They don't believe that Satan is real. Yeah, they, they don't believe in sin. Yeah. Yeah, they don't believe in sin at all, but that doesn't mean that what the activity that they're engaging in is sin. And, and whenever I say sin, I don't mean those those schmarmy, namby-pamby things that people seem to argue about. Is using an instrumental music, is that sin? Is using more than one cup sin? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about about this this idea of of pure humanist uh, humanistic naturalism in that there is no good there is no evil there are only actions that we do and this idea of sin is just this religious construct and and you know we are just just monkeys with a really highly functional frontal lobe and and the things that we do are just things that we do it's not there's no real evil there's no good those are philosophical constructs that have no bearing in reality they're just things that are culturally yeah. conditioned well we don't look at those people and say well in order to to accept the wages of that sin you must uh, have this certain level of knowledge or epistemology or, or whatever term you want to use for it, that that's a really important point. Yeah, well, well I would but, say, well, they're, they're not sinners. They, they can't be considered sin because they don't believe in sin. So therefore, the only way that they can bear witness to sin is if they believe they're sinning. And, yeah, and, and, and that's no ridiculous. one buys that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so in the same way, well, what if someone's bearing good fruit? Well, that good fruit doesn't count for anything because they don't understand uh, Jesus on the same level we do, so therefore their their good fruit might as well be bad. I think that's that's a fallacious conclusion. I, I think it would be the same way to argue that it's it's not sin unless someone believes it's sin, and it's not it's not accounted for as sin unless they are willing to accept it as sin. In the same way that well, someone's righteousness, someone's fruit bearing, someone's love can't actually be considered as good fruit unless they believe and understand. And have the same epistemological understanding when it comes to uh, Jesus that I have, and uh, I, I just I, I just think that to be consistent, you would have to make the argument both ways, regardless of which way you want to go. You would have to be consistent with it. So, in in terms of the Good Samaritan, it can be effectively summarized that what Jesus is teaching within the parable of the Good Samaritan is not just about who our neighbor is. It's not just about love and showing love to neighbor, but it's also demonstrating that the Good Samaritan had a saving faith because 
his actions bore witness to God and Jesus, even though he didn't know who Jesus was, even though he didn't have a proper understanding of God or even know what it was that he worshiped, to quote Jesus in John 4, that even though that's the case, his actions portray a saving faith and witness to God. Is, would that correct. be a fair summary? Okay. Yeah. So with, yeah. But so there, with are, that but there are mind, some other verses that you have to deal with. Well, and I'm going to ask you about one of them because <laughs> yeah. well, you, you, you know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> one, one of the things that I wonder about is, well, what do you do with first Thessalonians or rather second Thessalonians one and eight? Because in that passage, you have a pretty strong statement being made by the apostle Paul that those who do not know God are going to face the wrath of God. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read that if that's okay. I'm going to read the, the yeah, yeah, second half of verse seven. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse eight, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those on who, who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And I could read on, but I won't. The point is there. These are people who, in flaming fire, God is going to take vengeance on them. And why? Because they don't know God and they don't obey the gospel. So if the good Samaritan is teaching this idea that even those who don't know God will be saved, what do we do with this passage in first Thessalonians? God did it again. Second Thessalonians <laughs> one and eight. And I've got it right here in front of me that says that those who do not know God will face destruction. What do you do with that? Yeah. So first of all, I think this is where it's really important to frame how we're approaching scripture because if Paul is the author of Second Thessalonians, which I believe he was, and if Paul is also the author of Romans, and I believe he was slash is, then we have to try and figure out what's going on here. Um, what, what is Paul talking about? Is he, and for many years, I read this, just I took this verse, just kind of cut it out and plopped it up there and said, hey, the Bible's clear. Um, anybody who does not know God or does not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will be lost. They, they, will, uh, they will be destroyed. And it seems pretty clear. The Bible says that that settles it type of, of passage is how this is oftentimes used. Um, to the contrary, within context... Once again, I believe this is referring to Gentiles who heard but chose to reject God. In fact, this understanding of this passage actually is not a point of contention among most scholars and commentators, primarily because of everything else Paul has to say about Gentiles. And so which Gentiles? Should we understand this as all Gentiles for all time? Well, of course not. We would say those under the Old Testament. No, this can't be talking about them. So what we're doing is we're already qualifying passages. We're already saying this is not a timeless and universal statement because those under the Old Covenant who are Gentiles, we know they're saved. Um, or there, At least they're going to be some who are saved, even though they never followed Jewish law, even though they didn't know who God was. So Okay, we're qualifying that passage then. So who are we talking about? Well, is it talking about all Gentiles who are living based upon the best ways that they can, based upon the knowledge they have, even though they have no knowledge of God? 
I don't believe it can be talking about them because Paul also talked about them in Romans chapter 2 already. And he said that they are going to be judged separately. They're, going, they're not going to be judged the same way. So either Paul is contradicting himself and he's saying one thing to the Thessalonians and he's saying another thing to the Romans, or Paul is talking here in 2 Thessalonians about a specific group of Gentiles. And I believe that's what he's talking about. Uh, Eliot's commentary says this. It says, On them that know not God, according to the Greek, the word them uh, should also should should be repeated also in the next clause. The effect will then be to mark off the culprits into two classes, them that know not and them that obey not. A comparison of Ephesians 4, 17 through 18, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, etc., shows that by the first class are meant Gentiles. A comparison of Romans 10, 16, Romans 10, 21, and many other passages will show disobedience to the characteristic of the Jews. The Greek negative participle here is one which shows that the ignorance of the one set and the disobedience of the other were just the points for which they were to be punished. Therefore, of course, only those Gentiles who ignorance was voluntary, who chose to be Gentiles when they might have otherwise been joined to the true God, are the ones who are considered objects of wrath within this context. Here, as the context shows, Paul is thinking chiefly of Gentiles and Jews who actually persecuted the truth. The expositor's Greek testament says those who know not of not God are, of course, not pagans as such, but they are the immoral pagans, those who have rejected God in the sense of what Paul discussed in Romans 1.28. Uh, another commentary um, this is Jameson Brown commentary. No, not God, the Gentiles primary. Not, of course, those involuntarily not knowing God, but those willfully not knowing him, as Pharaoh, who might have known God if he would, but who boasted, I know not the Lord. And as the heathen persecutors who might have known God by the preaching of those whom they persecuted. And then Matthew Poole's commentary pretty much reiterates the same point. On them that know God would be the Gentiles who are said to know God. Romans 121, yet not glorified him as God, and because living in idolatry are said not to know him. Parallel passages are Galatians 4.8 and 1 Thessalonians 4.5. So yes, if we were to read 2 Thessalonians 1.8 as an isolated context, no doubt it would seem to imply that anybody, no matter how uh, sincere, no matter how much they follow the law written on their hearts, um, no matter what, there's no way that they could be saved if they don't know who God is or if they don't obey the gospel. But when we take in what else Paul said about the Gentiles, we have to qualify this statement and understand he's not talking about all Gentiles everywhere for all time, but those specifically who had an opportunity, who knew God, but as Romans 1 says, purposely rejected him and did not want to attain God in their thoughts. Well, and I think that that, that right there ties into this same concept, this same idea. It's a different topic, but it's the same sort of practice and the same idea that we had discussed whenever we were going through our series and our studies on women's roles and women's participation, whether that's a limited or full participation within corporate worship. Yeah. And it's the idea of, you know, looking at. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 and 1 Timothy 2 through the lens of the entirety of the body of scripture that illustrates that women are allowed to fully participate in preaching and teaching, etc. 
versus allowing those two passages to color all of the other passages that seem yeah. to indicate that's the case. It, it seems as almost almost as if that this is kind of the same idea. You know, do we see a a statement or series of statements being made in which it appears as though those who have a level of knowledge are going to be judged based on that knowledge and those who keep the laws, as Paul says in Romans 2, that those who keep the law without a knowledge of the law or a law in and into themselves or have that law to themselves, you know, is, how are we parsing that? Are we allowing all of these other passages that speak to the condemnation of others, are we taking those passages out of context? And after going through that, it's, it does seem pretty apparent that in Second Thessalonians 1 and 8, I'm not doing that again, <laughs> that he is talking about those who have overtly rejected God, who have a knowledge and have rejected him, and are now persecuting Christians for their belief in Jesus. It does seem to be the case. Yeah. And it, it's real easy, though, to take that passage and just dismiss this idea that, that we're discussing tonight out of hand it, by letting this verse color how we view those other passages. But in doing so, we're, we're, we fall into a trap. We take those passages out of context. Yeah, um, we do you have anything? Hitting... Oh, go, uh, ahead. Go, go ahead. I was just going to ask if you had something more you wanted to say about that, because I have another passage that comes to mind that I want to ask. Yeah. About. Well, what happens is we end up pitting one passage of scripture against another. And granted, I do believe that at times, especially in the Old Testament, we do see true bona fide tensions, discrepancies and things of that nature when different authors are writing. But when the same author is writing, we have to to be willing to take every, to take what they're saying into consideration and not just isolate one statement and then use that in a way that's uh, un, it's, it's unqualified. We're just going to take this statement and say it's invariably definitive, it's timeless, it's universally applicable. That's a problem when the same author already has said something else about that same topic. Um, you know, it's just like when there's a rule. But then you read an exception. The rule doesn't trump the exception. The exception is there as part of the rule. So if you read a rule, but then later you see an exception, you don't say, oh, well, I don't like the exception, so we're just going to stick to the rule. I mean, the exception's there for a reason. And so if Paul has been, if Paul has addressed this same group of people, but yet he already says that there are some Gentiles who could be saved or going to be saved who never knew about God post new covenant once again not not prior but post new covenant then paul could have not been referring to every single gentile otherwise this would be a bona fide contradiction that paul would have among himself and and that obviously would present even further problems so i think whenever we look at these statements we're the ones who oftentimes take bible statements and make them these propositional truths without any context. I mean, that that's our fault. That's our fault for doing this. You know, one verse in the Bible, it doesn't stand out as far as just as we're reading in the text more than another verse. That's why we have to read the story. Now, there are times when the Bible says this is the most important thing. I mean, when Jesus says this, these are the two most important commands. Yes, we need to pay attention to that. No doubt about it. But even within that, we have to understand what that looks like within the way that it plays itself out in the rest of the Bible. What else does the Bible have to say about this topic? What else does the same speaker or author have to say about this? And it's only by taking all of those things together are we going to be able to come to the most accurate conclusion, the most fair conclusion. And this just gets back to what I call fortune cookie theology. We want to open up the Bible, crack it open, and we want to read a verse and say, well, this is this is my life. You know, this applies to me for today. 
we don't actually want to spend the time. Many of us, some of us, I don't say many, some of, some of us don't want to spend the time to really delve in. We just want that quick passage to give us that fortune cookie answer. Um, the Bible's not a fortune cookie. We, we can't crack it open and within one second say, hey, I know what's going to happen today. I've got the answer to everything. I know the answer to this question. It takes time. It, it takes patience. It takes a lot of in-depth study. So uh, I, I think that's what you have going on here in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 is, I do think Paul is referencing Gentiles. I just don't think he's referencing all Gentiles. I think he's referencing Gentiles who had an opportunity, but they rejected that opportunity. They didn't care. They didn't want to follow Jesus. They didn't want to follow God. They didn't want the knowledge, even though they had that opportunity. Well, and I think that that's pretty plain whenever you look at the overall context of First and Second Thessalonians. But at the same time, I'd like to crack open another fortune cookie because yeah. there does seem to be another we passage. Got a couple more left to go. Don't yeah, we? we got a few more fortune cookies. That's right. But there do seem to be some other passages that aren't maybe as specifically focused on a a particular cohort of people, those who have heard the gospel and rejected it. There are other passages that seem to me more general in their overarching theme and application yeah. that seem to take this idea and, and take some of the veracity from it. And what I'd like to look at is Romans 10. So over in Romans 10 and, and in verses 13 through around 17 or so, I'm going to go ahead and read that. Yeah, it's verses 13 through 17. Here the Apostle Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes by from what is heard, or faith comes from what is heard. Faith comes by hearing, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. So in this passage, you seem to have Paul necessitating the importance of preaching. And he gives this whole logical construct of why one needs to go out and preach, why one needs to live for Jesus, why one needs to share Christ with the world, because it is by faith that we are saved. It's by faith that we find ourselves within the grace of God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, but you can't call on him if you don't know who he is, if you don't believe in him, and you can't believe in him if you've never heard of him, etc., and so on and so forth. That's why we need to go out and take the gospel to the world. Otherwise, no one will believe, and no one will then call on his name. Therefore, no one will be saved. So how does this idea work in terms of this idea of those who have never heard about Jesus possibly being saved? Sure. Yeah. So once again, it's my conviction that Paul's primary message here is that, first of all, contextually, both the Jews and Gentiles can now belong to the same body and group. We see that in Romans chapter 12, uh, 10, verse 12. So the verse right before verse 13 uh, is mentioning that. And so the good news here, the gospel, which the gospel literally means good news, the good news that Paul's saying needs to be shared is that the Gentiles are now accepted into the body, Romans chapter 10, verse 15. And so I think Paul's point is that the Gentiles need to be made aware that they now belong, that they, they're they part of the kingdom. I don't believe this is a uh, some sort of treaty describing what will happen to everybody who never hears. Rather, it's actually an admonition to get the word out to the Gentiles who in times past weren't included 
under the umbrella of God's people, uh, that now they have an equal inheritance in the kingdom. And so this is good news. And that's Paul's primary purpose for writing this is get the word out. This is good news. And so this is one of the reasons why I believe we're to evangelize, to get the gospel message out so that those who've never heard but have what I like to call a baseline law fulfillment faith demonstrated in love can have that faith extended to know who Jesus is personally. So without hearing that message, one may have a faith that bears witness to Jesus, but to know Jesus is a different experience altogether. So I'm from Alabama, and that's where I've actually gone to the birthplace of Helen Keller or where she uh, where she lived, and that was the field trip that if you lived in Alabama, because I lived in Huntsville, Alabama, so it was in, in that area. You know, like you you all knew all about Helen Keller. And it's been said that when Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf, learned to communicate with the outside world, her teacher shared with her about Jesus. And Keller said that she always knew he was there, but she just did not know his name. Oh, and, wow. and, and, and I really like, like that. I don't know how much that story has been exaggerated, but I, I, I would like to believe it's true. The idea is that there was something inside of her. She knew that she was living a life that was bigger than herself and for somebody else. She just didn't really know who it was, but she was still, as we pointed out earlier, bearing witness to that. And so going back to Romans 10, I believe this addresses getting the message out to the Gentiles, but doesn't say anything about what happens if somebody never hears. In fact, I believe this passage actually teaches that if someone does not hear, they're not accountable. Let me explain why. Romans 10.10 actually assumes that in order for one to confess, they have to first be presented with a message. And that's Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Some have actually used this context to affirm that those who never heard cannot be held accountable by Paul's own admission in Romans chapter 10. They argue that Paul's actually indicating that the only faith expectations one can have on another is based upon one's knowledge and opportunities per Romans 10, 14 through 17. In other words, the gospel needs to get out of the Gentiles so that they can know they have an inheritance. But if the message doesn't go out to them, they would continue to be judged based upon the quote unquote law on their hearts as discussed in Romans 2. Now, what's interesting is this is, what book is this? What letter is this? The letter to the Romans. This is they didn't have chapters and verses, but this is Romans chapter 10. Paul already told us what is going to happen to Gentiles who never heard <laughs> in, earlier in this letter. And so I don't think we should assume Paul is contradicting himself, that uh, what Paul writes earlier in his letter should now be minimized or dismissed based upon what he writes later on in his letter. Yeah. Like this has to once again, be, once again be qualified by what Paul wrote earlier in his letter. Well, and I think that's a fair point, and we'll circle back around to that here in a minute. But I have another question that, since we're talking about Paul, and I, I'm just going to keep coming at you with these just left and right. But but one but another question that I have is, well, then what do we do with Acts 17 and 30, where Paul is preaching in the Areopagus? He's preaching in the middle of this this pagan city in which Paul, well, you know, he's yeah. Go ahead. Before you go there, I want to make one more comment on uh, on Romans here. Go ahead, and I want to t I want to tie it in 
to Hebrews chapter 11, because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Um, in fact, let me let me go ahead and re- I'm just going to read this this little section here because I'll, I want to tie all this in together. I believe it's important because a lot of times people kind of isolate these verses and they don't really try to bring in what I believe to be the meta narrative, the underlying point that we see made in Scripture. But Hebrews 11, we already made mention of this earlier about the the hall of faith and how these individuals did not know Jesus, but that they had a faith that was considered to bear witness of Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse um, verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Now listen to this part. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I want you to look at that section. Anyone who comes to him. The idea, once again here, is that there has to be an opportunity present. And I think that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 10, as well as Romans chapter 2, is that we can only be accountable as far as our opportunities allow us to be. And we understand that if we're if we're talking about a two-year-old child, we'll say, well, of course they couldn't have had the same kind of faith. They didn't have the opportunity. They died when they were two. Well, what about a mentally handicapped person? Well, they don't have the mental opportunities that we have. All this still boils down to one thing, and that's opportunity. Whether it's a child, whether it's someone who doesn't have the mental capability, or whether it's someone who lives in a foreign land somewhere, and they are never going to hear the name of Jesus. We're all talking about the same thing, which is they didn't have that opportunity. And so I just wanted to to bring that up, that when we talk about faith, even in Hebrews 11, which ironically enough, this faith that's pleasing to God is this faith that we talked about earlier that bears witness to Christ. Moses specifically is is uh, who was discussed, and yet he didn't even know who Jesus was. So just, just all of those things, I'm just kind of bringing, I want to constantly reiterate, kind of the, I want to paint the picture for you. I don't want to ever just lose sight by looking at one verse. I want us to kind of make sure we're taking all of these verses into consideration here. Yeah, and that's fair. But Kevin, I would come back and clap back at you and say, yeah, well, you, what you're basically saying is that those who have the opportunity or those who never had the opportunity, they're ignorant of who Jesus is and who God is. And there was a time when God winked at ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And that's what it says in Acts 17. And you know that that's that's where I was wanting to go next is this idea that, you know, here's Paul gathered around in the Areopagus. He's present in this place. He's looking at all of these idols and he preaches this message. And he essentially says that God isn't, you know, anyone who can be represented or housed in a, in a um, facility of, of stone. He's not an image made by, made by man or by human skill. You know, and he's speaking in terms of idolatry specifically here, but he says in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, which was ignorance as to God's true nature and who he was. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So doesn't that tend to blow a hole, a huge hole in the concept of opportunity as opportunity or the lack of opportunity is linked to ignorance. Because a lot of times we use that term ignorance and people say, oh, well, that person's just being ignorant. And they use that as a pejorative term. And it's not that that person's stupid. Ignorance does not mean stupidity. Ignorance just means you don't know. 
you know, in years and years and years ago, thousands of years ago, they didn't know that the earth was a sphere that rotated around the sun. They were ignorant to that fact. They weren't stupid people, but they were ignorant to it. So in in terms of opportunity, doesn't ignorance play a role in that and shouldn't repentance? Doesn't that seem to indicate that that idea of opportunity isn't as ironclad as we might think? Yeah, so Acts seventeen thirty is a lot like the Second Thessalonians one, uh, you know, eight through ten passage where it just seems like a slam dunk. I mean, when you when you just read it, it's like, man, this just is so clear, clear as day. I mean, how could anyone misunderstand this? But the problem is that um, this passage oftentimes is not contextualized, and I know I just am sounding like a robot repeating this, but <laughs> for starters, let's talk about what this time of ignorance is talking about. So this time of ignorance Paul is discussing is not about general ignorance, but it's actually equated to the mystery that has been revealed. That is, both Jews and Gentiles have an equal inheritance in the same kingdom. And Paul explains this ignorance that has been now known, this mystery that has now been revealed in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. This was once a mystery, and people were kept in ignorance on this before Jesus came. In fact, prior to Jesus, Gentiles could convert to the Jewish system and follow God. We see this in Esther 8, 17, Acts 2, 11, um, Acts uh, 6, 5, Acts 13, 43. Uh, sometimes these are known as proselytes. Isaiah 56 speaks of this. The idea is that there were individuals who could Convert in some of the war stories. That was kind of the <laughs> that was the ongoing theme. Is that which that's a different story for another time. But it's hey, you have the opportunity if you want to, you can convert and be our slaves, or we'll kill you. Which one do you want? And uh, so, in some ways, and actually many ways, we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that speaks to this that there were Gentiles who could be converted to being quote unquote God's people under the old covenant because they would live their life as Jews. Now, what this meant is that male Gentiles would receive circumcision and all of the converts to the Israelite system would accept the responsibilities of the Mosaic law. Uh, In fact, there was even a place in the temple called the court of the Gentiles to accommodate these adherents to Judaism. So what you have is that the Old Testament represents a time of progression. You could have heard the message of God under the Old Testament and rejected it and still been saved. You did not have to convert to Judaism if you were a Gentile. You had the opportunity to convert, but you did not have to convert under the Old Covenant. That's important to understand. So the Old Testament represents this time of progression and maturation, which means Gentiles did not have to accept the message of Jehovah because this was before the mystery of Jesus had been revealed. So what if I was a Gentile and I ran across a Jew and I heard about God? What if I said, oh, no, I've got my own gods I'm worshiping over here? That time of ignorance was accepted under the old covenant. It was okay. It was okay for a Gentile to hear about Jehovah God and not worship Jehovah God. That was okay. They, they could hear they could understand. They could they could say this message of Jehovah God has been presented, but I'm already worshiping my other multiple gods, and I'm a Gentile, you're a Jew, I'm not going to convert. That's okay. That was that was okay under the old covenant. And so what we have is during this time, once again, being 
pre-New Covenant, pagans could reject the Jewish system and go on their way and still be blessed by Jehovah God. We miss this. We miss this all the time. But this is what Paul's talking about. There was a time when Paul could have gone and given this message had it been under the old covenant about Jehovah God. And they could have said, nope, we're good. We're already worshiping our own gods. And that ignorance would have been overlooked because this was before the mystery was revealed. This was before Jesus came. This was before God was manifested in the person of Jesus. And according to Ephesians 2, broke down that middle wall of separation where now the Jew and Gentile could both be one in the same body. But now, Paul says, that time's over. Jesus has come. This has happened. Because Jesus has come and the mystery has been revealed, both Jews and Gentiles are meant to be together. We're not meant to be segregated anymore. We're, 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 we're meant to worship together in the same kingdom. Sure, under the old covenant, Jews and Gentiles could worship differently. Heck, you could even worship a different God. But that has ceased. That time is no more. When you're presented with Jehovah God, you can no longer say, no, I don't want that. I've got my other gods. Why? Because Jesus has now been revealed. God has been revealed. What this means is that now when the Gentiles hear the mystery revealed, they can't reject it and continue to do their own thing like they had been able to in days gone by. However, what I don't believe this passage does is address Gentiles who would never hear. The reason is because Paul's addressing Gentiles who were literally hearing the message preached. (laughs) He was literally speaking to people who were not ignorant. Otherwise... Here's what a lot of people miss, including myself for many years. I believe the gospel still remains a mystery to those who've never heard. And as long as something is a mystery, then they have not had that opportunity. So what about those who never hear the message preached? I go back to Romans 2. The same person who spoke the words in Acts 17 penned the words in Romans 2 when he said, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the law, that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. When Paul writes this, he is writing in the present tense, meaning he's speaking to include not only past, but present Gentiles who've never heard. When Paul's writing in Acts 17, the ignorance he's talking about is the mystery that has now been revealed that they have now heard that they no longer can ignore because they've heard it. And when they've heard it, now they have to repent. All people everywhere who have this mystery revealed to them are responsible, are obligated to follow Jesus Christ. And so I think that's what Paul is talking about here. This means there will be those who will be saved, although they never heard. And I believe they were saved because they accessed Jesus since they follow the law written on their hearts. But that's not what we have going on in Acts chapter 17. And so that brings up a question that most people ask inevitably, and that is, what is the point of evangelizing, Kevin? If God is ultimately going to save people who have good hearts anyway, and they don't have to hear the gospel message, why even preach the gospel message? Why was Paul out? Why was Peter out? Why were they going out preaching this message and, and getting killed? They were willing to die for it when... They could have said, well, hey, it's okay because if the mystery hasn't been preached to them, then God's just going to save them anyway. Why put your life on the line for that? And uh, that is a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
you know, but and, and this is more of a theoretical question that doesn't actually affect the truthfulness of the topic one way or the other. In fact, this question is often asked in attempts to discredit the position that I've laid forth in this episode. Um, the progression usually looks like this, and I know because I used to ask it this way when when I believed otherwise. I would say, well, if people who have a faith fulfilled in love without hearing the gospel are going to be saved, then why should we teach them about Jesus and risk the chance that they might end up rejecting the message of Jesus? Wouldn't we be better off if we just left them alone? Well, I, this is my answer to that. And and you you can find a lot of people much smarter much more scholarly, uh, much more academic than I am, give you answers. But this is where I stand. I believe one of the reasons, the main reasons we're to evangelize is to get the gospel message out so that those who have never heard, but they have that baseline law fulfillment faith demonstrated in love, can have that faith extended to know who Jesus is personally. I believe it's also to further the kingdom and allow people to begin to experience here on earth. Or to better summarize it, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Luke 4, 18 through 19. Those are the words of Jesus as He was fulfilling the prophecy found in Isaiah. Many, this question to me exposes actually a bigger problem, and that is the gospel is not good news. The gospel is a get-out-of-hell-free card. Yeah. That's like me saying, well, if I have just you know found the best restaurant in town to eat at, why would you tell other people about it if they can never eat at it and be fine? Well, because I want them to enjoy it. I want them to be able to experience it, and specifically— Lee, here's the reason why Paul and Peter and all these other guys and, and girls, women and men were dying for their faith is because they were being followers of Jesus in their day and time when there was heavy persecution and getting the message out to the Gentiles was vital because this was a message of love and acceptance. That was the point of the gospel is to let the Gentiles know they are now accepted. Uh, unlike uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus who were overturning the faith are overthrowing the faith of people because these Gentiles felt like they couldn't be accepted, that it that that they couldn't be part of the kingdom. This was a message. It, this, this wasn't so much about a get out of hell free card as it was you are loved, you are accepted, you are part of this kingdom. And if we look at the gospel as good news and we look at, at acceptance and love and being able to, to treat one another the way we want to be treated, to help those who are oppressed, and we begin to look at it that way, that's why I want to get the word out to people. That's why uh, hell, uh, this idea of get out of get out of hell free card. We've got to abandon that. We've got to abandon that because that's not how the gospel was understood. When when in reality the gospel's meant to be a message of good news and freedom, not fear and further bondage. And so, why are we to share good news so others can begin to truly? enjoy it. I, I believe the effects of the gospel message changes things, and it changes people. So yes, I believe we need to evangelize, but perhaps our motivations need to be reevaluated for doing so. Is it because we are trying to introduce people to Jesus who can change their life for the better, or so we can scare them into getting fire insurance? Now, I also believe that if someone is already following the law of love, yeah. then I believe they will not reject Jesus. This idea, this idea, oh, well, what happens if if you give someone the gospel message 
and they reject it. You know, what happens if they don't want to follow you? What happens if they don't want to love people? Well, if they're already loving people, they're already doing it anyway. You're just now introducing them to the person behind love (laughs) is all you're doing. And so, you know, once again, most people have no problem saying that babies will be saved. Those who are mentally handicapped will be saved. uh, Or those who don't have cognitive opportunity to understand will be saved. What about those who don't have geographical ability? to understand or to hear what's the difference and why would we say cog- being not able to cognitively understand is somehow except is going to be an exception to the rule but someone who is geographically handicapped had that that for whatever reason they are going to be held accountable and so um anyway there's a lot more we could say about this but uh i, I do want to say this i want to i just want to consider a most atrocious conclusion for a moment if all accountable humans sin and fall short of God's glory and the majority of them are going to reject the gospel and be lost, and if most people will never hear, uh, they're going to be automatically lost, then wouldn't the most merciful thing be to kill as many babies as possible if the babies are going to be saved? Now, this is horrible. I'm just simply saying that where this line of logic continues, especially those in foreign lands. You know, most people in foreign lands where they probably never will hear the gospel are, are basically zero. Instead of trying to provide them with food and water to keep them alive, maybe we just need to send them poison pills so they can kill their children and send them to heaven. I mean, why risk the chance of them growing up to be an accountable adult and rejecting the gospel when we can go ahead and send them straight to glory? Now, this is, once again, horrible. What I'm saying is horrible. But if this is the problem with theoretical questions. If I believe that all children are, are automatically saved and that the majority of children when they grow up will reject God, then the most merciful thing we can do is kill children. But that's horrible to conclude. But if we're going to ask these the- theoretical questions, the chances of most children growing up to be faithful Christians, especially by the standards of some, are slim to none. Therefore, by this logic, wouldn't the most loving thing be is to just go ahead and kill them so they can have eternal life and we can spare them from hell? Now, if, if that disgusts you and makes you angry, I hope it sh- I hope it does. It should. Uh, it's quite frankly, it's hard for me to even say it and use this as an example. But my point in bringing this up is that those who believe that God sends everyone to hell who has never heard have much deeper theor- theoretical questions on their hands than why evangelize if God's going to save people. Um, no, now, I, why I'm oh, uh, go ahead. I was I was just going to say, man, that. That is a very, very, very thought-provoking point in terms of of the purpose behind evangelizing. And that question, I mean, believe it or not, that's something that I have lied awake at night wondering is if these people who will never hear the gospel, they're going to be lost. And if these babies are saved, then wouldn't it make sense to, to do what you just said so that their souls will ultimately be saved forever? And if your prospect of evangelizing or your purpose of evangelizing, I should say, is is fire insurance, essentially, it's, it's to get out of hell free. Well, if that is the case, that is this is invariably one of those questions that could be raised if that's the if that's the case. And if this is not the case, if this is something we shouldn't do as far as killing children goes, in which I agree 100 percent, it's not something we should do. Well, then, if not, why not? If the soul is the yeah. most important thing we have and ensuring our soul security in heaven is more important than anything else, then wouldn't it stand to reason that this is something that we should consider? And 
of course it's not anything we should consider. And really it does get to the root of that question. Why evangelize? And, and one of the things you were saying is that it helps to, you know, the, the purpose of evangelizing is so that people can share in a more abundant life. You know, Jesus came to give life more abundantly. Yeah. It's not just to get out of hell free. It's not just to ensure that we are spared destruction on judgment day. It's so that we can appreciate a more abundant life. And that, particular domino knocks down a whole bunch of other dominoes. Well, then if your Christian life is not very fulfilling, if your Christian life is not very abundant, and by that, I don't mean that you're growing in material wealth. It doesn't mean that you live in a, you know, in a stack mansion and you drive a, you know, a Bentley or a Benz or anything like that, or even a Tesla. It, it, it doesn't mean that that's the case. That's not a, what a more abundant life means. This is a life that well, exhibits fruit of the spirit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's- yeah. This is abundance in joy and kindness and mercy and peace and thankfulness and contentment. And who wouldn't want a life like that? You know, one of the, one of the things that has helped my life more than anything else is jujitsu. I talk about it a lot. I talk to everybody about jujitsu and I invite about half of my, I mean, whenever you were a patient and you were seeing me, I invited you to come and did you to come and train jujitsu as well. Jujitsu is hard. It, I mean, I have some minor little nagging injuries from it, but I tell everybody about it because it has helped me in so many other ways. It has made my life more abundant. And it's not just about knowing how to fight better. It's not about that. It's being able to face adversity. It's being able to overcome trials and knowing that even in an uncomfortable spot, you can be okay and do better. That's why I evangelize about jujitsu to people. It has made my life more abundant. It's the same reason why we should evangelize about Jesus is because there is a more abundant life there when you know the author of love and joy and peace itself. Yeah, it changes you. And I've told a lot of people that if, if this point in my life, I, I could never be convinced that God doesn't exist and that Jesus is is was was not God manifested on earth. And the reason is because living according to my understanding of who Jesus is and his love ethic has changed me for the better. Yeah. Um, I I look back at my former life and where my life is now and I have experienced the the change in my own life that is undeniable and it's because of what i learned from jesus christ now regardless of what else might be said that's hopefully my testimony is the way that i live i hope people can look at me and say man this guy who once was a crazy jerk is now uh, doing his best even though i fail every day to love people to care about people to, to really try to to show compassion and mercy and that th- having that is, it goes back to like Helen Keller, what we said. I mean, she's like, well, I I knew who he was, or I knew, I knew there was someone there. I just didn't know their name. (laughs) And, and I feel like that's how a lot of people are in this world is that they don't know Jesus, but they're bearing fruit. That is proof that they are loving their neighbor as themselves and they are fruit bearers for Jesus. They just simply don't know who, who is, who his name is. Um, or what his name is and who he is personally, but they're able to still have that very, what I call underlying base level faith. And that's the only reason I brought the example up of children is because the, the, uh, theoretical questions can always be asked regardless what position you hold. Because to me, if you believe that children are saved 
and that once they reach a certain age, they're lost, and the chances of most children ever being faithful Christians is slim to none, very hard, and most people won't. Why not go ahead and kill kids? I mean, like the most merciful, loving thing that belief could do on an if, eternal scale. If, yeah. If yes, if carried out to its logical conclusion, would be to kill children, to kill innocent children, to ensure they don't grow up to reject God. So, see, that's the same type of theoretical question. In fact, I think that that's a much more difficult theoretical question to ask than what's the point of evangelizing. I mean, I, I can give you some some good reasons for that. I can't answer it the other way. You know, <laughs> yep. it's like why why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? If you had the opportunity, why would you not do that? Because I hear parents all the time, well, I'm scared to death of my children growing up and rejecting God. I know they're saved right now. They're safe or safe, whatever word people want to use. But I just, we live in such a horrible world that, you know, they're probably not going to follow God. Then go ahead and just send them to heaven. Go ahead and kill them. I mean, if this is all about eternity anyway. And by the way, it's these types of thoughts that scare me to death when it comes to religious zealots because they'll yeah. hear this and they'll think, oh, maybe Kevin's right. You know, maybe, maybe we need to start it. No, that's not no. what I'm saying. No, 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 not at all. not what I'm saying. <laughs> Emphatically, no. But, th but this is the problem with theoretical questions is regardless of what position you take on any given issue, you're going to have theoretical questions that you either can't answer or that you're not going to be able to answer in a way that may be satisfactory to either you or your those who would disagree with you. But I look at it and say, well, which which theoretical questions are not the worst? <laughs> you know, like what like which one is the is the is the best to work with? This one's a lot easier to work with. Uh, what's the point of evangelizing than you know, why are we not killing children? So I, I think that overall, um, you know, we probably spent a little bit more time on this than we had talked about, but overall, I know there's a lot more questions we could address. People probably ask, well, what about this first? What about this first? What about that first? And a lot of these can be kind of lumped together, I think. But I hope the information in this study has definitely at least given everyone a springboard to consider these passages. If I could just quickly summarize it, here's what I would say. I believe that the the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, the underlying principles taught in scripture is that love is the ultimate fulfillment of the law and that based upon the parable of the good samaritan and based upon paul's teaching in romans 2 about gentiles who never heard and based upon both paul and the writer of hebrews teachings on faith from the old testament i believe that those who never had an opportunity to hear will be judged based ac accordingly that's that. I, I'm not going to say everyone will be saved. I don't know that, but I think that they will be uh, judged ac accordingly and based upon how they live their life with the information they did have. And all of the passages that speak about Jesus being the only way, I agree 100%. I believe that the majority of the times those are not dealing with the with with every single individual, but within context, it's dealing with those who have heard. And those who have rejected him, especially the passages that speak of those who uh, do not confess how God will not confess them. I believe that he's talking about those who had an opportunity. So I kind of pack all those passages under one category there because I believe that all of those could be understood that with what I just mentioned with Romans 2, the Good Samaritan, Hebrews 11, et cetera, et cetera.
Well, in that so, last... soteriological, that those would be more soteriological. So I do believe Jesus is the only way. I don't want people going out of here saying, oh, Kevin thinks you can believe whatever you want to. No, I believe Jesus is the only way. When it comes to soteriology, I believe Jesus is the means by which every single person who has ever been saved is being saved or will be saved. It will be because of Jesus. Well, and I agree with that. And one of the last points you made as we wrap this up, I also fully agree with. And and like I said at the top of this episode, I'm I'm not really sure where I land on this topic. I mean, what I would like to think is that what we have talked about tonight is that way, but I'm just I'm just not sure that I'm fully there yet as far as my particular epistemology goes. But even so, one of the things that I appreciate about this perspective is that it is a more Christocentric perspective. And you know, that that's a term that we use a lot on this podcast is a Christocentric hermeneutic or a Christocentric or Christ-centered understanding of Scripture. And what that simply means is that everything that we look at in Scripture and how we parse it and how we apply it is done so through the lens of Jesus himself. Jesus is the full manifestation of God bodily, Paul said in Colossians. He is the full representation of who God is in all actuality. And he is the ultimate representation of what it means to, to follow the commandments of God, even to the point of death, the cross. And whenever we think in terms of, of a Christocentric hermeneutic, if we arrive at a conclusion that flies in the face of what the scriptures reveal or who the scriptures reveal Jesus to be, then we probably don't have the right conclusion and we need to reexamine that. And that's one thing I can definitely appreciate about this perspective is that it does take that Christocentric accounting into consideration. And I think this has been a really good discussion. It's it's one that I still struggle with wrapping my head around conceptually. It's one, like I said, I, I just don't really know 100% where I am yet, but I definitely see the veracity in it, and I see how it definitely could be the case. It's it's one that years ago I would have said, no, yeah. Kevin, you're just loud and wrong. That's just, there's no way that that could be the case. And even though I'm not tracking with you 100%, I see the point and I see the veracity of it. It's just, it's a question of whether or not I can undo enough of my cultural and, <laughs> and spiritual formation in order to readily accept it. But no, man, I think this has been great. Do you have anything else you want to well, say before we wrap it up? Well, I was just going to say, and, and ultimately, even these passages we discussed tonight, I think, have to be further qualified and contextualized. And at the end of the day, I want to say that I'm a hopeful universalist. And at best, I believe, uh, or just at worst, I believe that uh, the meta narrative of the Bible points in the direction that anybody who wants to go to heaven and follow Jesus will have an opportunity to do so, whether that's this life or the life to come, however that plays out, that's a different discussion for a different time, uh, because that's uh, that definitely is, is going to take some time to unpack. But uh, some of the examples and some of the arguments I used with, or some of the reasoning and arguments I used within this, I believe can go hand in hand with uh, Christian universalism and a view on that. But Really weren't able to unpack that in this episode, but I did just want to bring that up, that knowing who Jesus is and understanding how he acted, looking at his teachings, looking at the New Testament teachings and putting everything together, it just seems apparent to me, based upon my study, that it's only those who don't want God. Those are the, you know, God's, it doesn't seem like God's going to force anybody to follow him. 
Yeah. Um, that's that seems to be pretty clear. And so it's but anyone who wants to follow him who may have just not had an opportunity, I believe will get that opportunity or will be saved, whether it's if they're a little child who uh, didn't have the the opportunity, the time opportunity to grow into it, whether it was someone mentally handicapped who didn't have the um, the, the cognitive opportunity because of their brain and the way it developed, or whether it's someone who didn't have a geographical opportunity because of where they happen to be born. I think, I, I think for us to, to simply say a couple of those could be exceptions, but one in particular isn't being the geographic. I, I just think that's highly inconsistent. I mean, if we can make exceptions based upon children and based upon those who are mentally handicapped, what about others who didn't have opportunities just in different ways? I don't, I don't see a difference between that. And so if I believe the children are going to be saved, the mentally handicapped are going to be saved, which I do, then uh, I think it, it has to bleed over into those who also didn't have opportunities because of, of other various, um, just various lack of opportunity. No, and, and I think that's a fair point, and I think it's definitely something that's worth considering. I think we've considered it well this evening. You know, to our listeners, I'm sure that there's going to be many of you that you may hear this and you've heard this for the first time, and it makes a lot of sense to you, and you find yourself on board with it, and I think that's awesome. Uh, for some of you, you may be like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really comfortable with that. And you know what? That's okay, too, because in this entire podcast, and this is something that even that Kevin and I don't agree fully on, at least not yet. We don't, I might yet be persuaded. Kevin may change his mind. Who knows? But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because the purpose of this podcast isn't to pursue a new level of conformity in thought or practice or application of scripture. It's to explore faith. It's to get people to think It's to explore faith and pursue grace. So if we have caused you to think and you've thought more fully about it and you're like, no, I'm just not buying it. Awesome. That's great. If you've thought about it and you're like, nope, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. I think I'm compelled to to lean that direction. That's awesome too. At the end of the day, our goal is to challenge everybody who follows Jesus to think more clearly about what they believe, why they believe it, and to ultimately explore their faith in pursuit of God's grace. And if we've done that in this episode, well, then we've accomplished that mission. It's not about conformity of thought. Unless you decide you want to agree with us on every little thing, in which case, yeah, that'd be awesome, and you'll be officially in the cool people's club. So thank you all for listening. You'll probably find yourself changing a lot, because that's that's what I (laughs) (laughs) Touche. But in any case, we brother, thank you for the good conversation. To our listeners, thank you all for listening. We appreciate you all so much. Share this podcast with your friends. Share it with your loved ones. Share it with everybody that you know. Um, whether they'd be interested or not, maybe they will be. Maybe they'll become nerds for this kind of thing like Kevin and I are, which would be really cool. Um, give us that five-star review on iTunes. Uh, drop us a line if you have any questions or concerns or comments. We love hearing from you guys. We appreciate all of you, and we wish you all a good night.